Uh, most of my life, God has given me much success with ministry to teenagers. It's kind of been my thing for a while. And I was expecting it to go the same way with these young people until it went the exact opposite. I would come in and it would, I've never honestly met a more apathetic, uninterested, passive bunch of teenagers in my whole life. I felt like they didn't care about anything. It was bizarre. It was like I'd energetically teach these lessons and it was like talking to a brick wall. In fact, I think I might get a little bit more back from the brick wall than I did with these kids. And I became more and more jaded as I'm teaching these kids about kind of like what I'm supposed to do. And then lockdown hits and I'm not allowed to go in the school anymore. And honest with you guys, I was relieved that I didn't have to go back and try to teach these kids again. It was like nothing was coming back at me. And I remember I was talking to someone close to me about it, and they were trying to reassure me. They said, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And I was like, yeah, that's good. Like, the fault's not with me, it's with them. That's right, you know, this is all good. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that it was really just a dumb statement. Because if you want a horse to drink, you've got to make him thirsty. That's how you solve it. You've got to make him thirsty. A thirsty horse, you won't even need to lead to water. A thirsty horse will run to the nearest source of water it can find. And our, probably, our problem is not necessarily a lack of water. Our problem is a lack of thirst. And in many ways, we think that God merely leads us to water, but it's our choice to drink. But that's not true. God doesn't merely lead us to water. He makes us thirsty. He makes us ravenous. He makes us voracious and insatiable until we're desperately searching for the truth that can quench our frantic heart. As the great church father Augustine said, our heart is restless until it rests in you. And today in our story, we see a thirsty man, a ravenous man, a restless man. And just like every single person in this world who has ever lived, except Jacob, like all of us who have found Christ, has found water. And his thirst is being quenched. And he's desperate to get home. So we're going to get into it. Genesis 31, we're starting from verse 17. And this is my first scene for you. Scene one, the great escape. Please read with me from verse 17. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Paddan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. Jacob has become a new man. We saw that last week, didn't we? For a while, he'd been MIA with his family. He'd been missing in action. His family squabbled and bickered over status and children, and he preferred to keep to himself and stay out late in the field. If nothing else, it made him an excellent shepherd, a skill that he's put to use because he's raised up this new flock from the ground up. And he's back on mission, and this man who seemed to be apathetic, a stone wall, a brick wall, someone that you couldn't get anything out of. He just was like, okay, I guess I will be bought by mandrakes. Now he's thirsty. Now he's going somewhere. 
He knows he's supposed to be where God has called him. And where is that? The promised land. This is where he needs to be. He needs to get home. But there's only one catch. His father-in-law Laban is not going to let him go. It's not going to let him go at all. And would that be just enough reason for Jacob to stick around? Avoid that conflict. Avoid that situation. Well, Jacob was content for a while to live in servitude and slavery for a season, but he's restless now. He wants to go home. He gathers his wives, his family together, and they all decide they've got to make a great escape. They've got to get out of here. And the good thing is they've got three days advantage on Laban. And so they're thinking that's just enough that they can escape into the hill country of Gilead and get away from him before he can catch them. That's the plan at least. So they jump on their camels, they gather all their belongings, their livestock, and they leave while Laban is busy shearing his sheep back at home. And they cross the Euphrates, this river that signifies the border of Mesopotamia. They are leaving this area and they're in the barren wilderness of the hill country of Gilead. And while they're all getting ready to run away, we see Rachel skulking about and sneaking in Laban's camp. What is she doing there? She's stealing his household gods. What on earth? What's going on here? Well, Rachel, for some reason, decided it would be a great idea to steal all of Laban's statues and planks of wood that were carved to represent different gods of the time. And she's stolen them all and taken them on the journey with them. But why? Why would she do that? Why risk herself like this? Well, we're just not told. The Bible doesn't tell us. And so I'll give you three options. Perhaps she couldn't just bear the thought of being away from these gods, the gods that she grew up with. Perhaps it was familiarity that made her want to go steal it. Perhaps she just wanted to get back at her abusive father and steal something that a prized possession of him as kind of like a last, um, you know, a way to get back at him. Or maybe she thought they would protect her on a dangerous journey. I don't know what it is, but I think the last point is the most likely. I think she went with that because she didn't trust God enough to get her there safely and she needed a little extra insurance. She needed a little extra security, a little bit of extra help because trusting in God was too risky. And you know what? It makes sense that she feels like she needs this help on her journey because when Laban finds out that they have left, murder is on his mind. He is very angry. This is where we get to our second scene, the nightmare. Genesis 31 from verse 22. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs with tambourines and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. 
And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Well, Jacob, he's got a three-day head start. And he's trying to make the most of it, but he has to drive out a whole bunch of cattle and livestock and sheep and goats, and that's just slowing him down. He's got servants, he's got all the children with him, he charges into the desert, and that's when Laban finds out about him. And like a man possessed, he is filled with rage and he takes off after them and he will capture them. And if anything, he gets there in amazing time. He's pursuing that son-in-law that's ruined all his plans. And we know what Laban is like. He's this nightmare father-in-law who's had, you know, for some time been this narcissistic, consumed by greed character that's micromanaging and controlling everyone in his family. He's been outsmarted by Jacob and he sets out to kill. People like this, when you cross them, this is how they react. Anger. Laban never once takes responsibility for his actions. And when someone doesn't play by their rules or says something outside their narrative or doesn't play into their manipulative plans, they react in anger. And boy, Laban is angry. With this three-day advantage, it doesn't matter because in seven days, Laban has already overtaken Jacob. He's brought all his kinsmen. And listen to the language here. It says that Laban overtook Jacob. It says that they pitched tents. Do you know what that is signifying? A battle is about to take place. There are swords. There are bows. They're ready for a showdown. Jacob, this nightmare father-in-law, is confronted with his own nightmare. Because as he sleeps in his tent, God shows up. He sleeps in his tent. I imagine he's full of self-righteousness. It'd be amazing if he actually was able to sleep, but he was sleeping feeling like he was justified, that all his anger was worthwhile. And then God says, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, good or bad. And in that one phrase, Laban's been disarmed. In that one phrase, Laban has lost all his power. In that one phrase, Laban is gone. He has a nightmare of his own. He might want to do Jacob harm, but now he recognizes that if he does anything good or bad to Jacob, he'll be in big trouble, big trouble. He's frustrated. He's probably a little scared. People like this often have their carefully crafted empire of manipulation and deceit come crashing down around them by the hand of God. And how do they respond? rage. Proverbs 19.3, when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. He approaches Jacob and he can't harm him. He can't even really say anything that much to him. So he starts to throw questions at him that are thinly veiled accusations. Why did you trick me? Why did you drive my daughters away like captives to the sword? Notice the way that he's framing all these questions. Laban is a master at framing everything to fit his narrative. He changes the narrative desperately to portray Jacob as much as possible as the bad guy. Jacob is the bad guy in this situation. He says, I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre. Like, yeah, right, dude, give me a break. Of course, you're not going to do that. Listen to this, this self-righteousness in his voice. Listen to the way he reframes everything. Jacob's the dodgy one. 
When Laban's just been cheating and mistreating Jacob and his daughters this whole time. Listen to the way he says at the end, you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. He's basically saying, Jacob, the only reason you're going right now is because you're homesick. You know, he's reframing everything. His escape is just because he's homesick, just because he's longing for his father's house. I mean, how selfish, Jacob. How selfish, just because you're homesick, you're going to rip us all apart. He even says to Jacob, I'm justified in killing you. He says, it is in my power to do you harm. That's basically saying, I could kill you right now if I wanted to. I have every right to. And then he says, but God spoke to me. Laban is not in control. Laban is no match for God. And he's picked a fight with the wrong man. This is where the whole interaction should have ended, except for Rachel's foolish decision, because Laban asks, why did you steal my gods? Scene three, the household gods, Genesis 31, 31. Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tents and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants and he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent but did not find them. And she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Well, we see the reason why Jacob's left. He says here he was afraid that Laban would take everything off and send Jacob away empty handed. And that's exactly what Laban would have done. Would have been like, they're my daughters. Those grandkids, my grandkids. Off you go, Jacob. You can go back to your home if you want to. He wasn't going to send him away with anything. But this accusation of stealing the gods is new to Jacob. He he knows nothing about this. This is something that Rachel's done in secret. In fact, he was so confident that no one had stolen anything of the sort that he says, whoever steals it shall be put to death. Careful, Jacob. The wife that you love, the wife that you worked seven long years for is the one that stole it. And Laban goes out to search. He searches everyone's tents, ransacking them, invading their privacy, trying to find these carved idols. He looks in Leah's tent, Zilpah's tent, Bilhah's tent. He can't find it. And now Rachel knows that her life is in danger. And so she hides the gods in her saddle. And Laban comes in. He sees her sitting on the saddle and complains, well, I can't get up because the way of women is upon me. And this is where the Hebrews would be having a good old laugh right now. Because here you have Laban's mighty household gods that they've watched over their household for centuries and a menstruating woman is sitting on top of them. For such a tense situation, here the story provides a little bit of comic relief for us. These powerful gods that they've been trusting in and here they are hidden in a saddle. I mean, Rachel turned to these gods for protection. She turned to these gods to satisfy her desire, her needs for safety 
Laban only consulted these gods in last week's passage, you remember? He consulted them by divination to learn that he was being blessed by Jacob. And yet they are nothing more than worthless chunks of metal and wood. If you were a pagan reading this, you would be horrified. You'd be thinking, Rachel has just invited a curse upon the whole household. These gods are going to be so mad at her for doing this. But if you're a Hebrew, you just chuckle because you know those gods can't do anything. You know, they don't exist. They're just a bunch of statues and hunks of wood. Don't be fooled. These gods have no power. The only powerful sovereign God in this story is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The only true God who can provide the safety that Rachel is looking for. The only true God who overcomes the plans of man. And that is exactly what he has done to Laban, this man who trusted in these gods. And look at these gods now. Look how powerful they are. I mean, I'm sure Jacob was scared when Laban first showed up. He was worried that a battle was about to ensue. But now he's getting mad. Now he's angry. He's been accused of stealing. He's had everything reframed. He's been gaslit by this man. Reframed him as the bad guy and he's finally had enough. Scene four, the patriarch's anger. Read from verse 36. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beast I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, six years for your flocks. And now you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Have you ever had a boss or a family member and you just wanted to let them have it? Well, this is Jacob's cathartic release. This is his liberating feeling where he gets to just vent all those long 20 years of being mistreated. This is Jacob's chance and he does not pull any punches. He's been taken advantage of for so long, not just by Laban, but by his wives. And he's standing up for himself. He tried to run away from Laban. He wanted to leave the whole situation behind. But God had other plans. God needed Jacob to confront Laban. Jacob needed to be a man. He needed to say these things earlier, but better late than never. He's finally standing up for himself. When Jacob first left to travel to Paddan Aram for a wife, I'm sure he thought he was going to be home by Christmas. And yet here he is 20 years later. A man who has suffered much and had changed drastically for it. It just highlights for us 
how God operates on just completely different timescales to us, doesn't he? 20 years is a quarter of someone's life. And yet Jacob needed year after year of discipline in order to become the man that God intended. And even though he has suffered so much, he still has so much left to go. He tried to duck out without confronting Laban, and yet God brought it to a head. God wasn't going to let Jacob get away without dealing with his problems like a man. And yet God will protect him as the bearer of the covenant. Jacob notices that all of this was by God's hand, and he knows that if it was not for the God of his father Isaac, interesting phrase here, it says the fear of Isaac. It's like a phrase to apply to God. He would have been sent away empty-handed. Imagine that. 20 years, you build this family, you build this flock. Imagine getting sent away with nothing, separated from your family, cast out into the wilderness. No wives, no grandchildren, no flocks. Well, God knew this and God showed up. Jacob says, he rebuked you in, in that dream. God saw the injustice and notice this, God was not silent. All of Laban's plans have collapsed and here he is being rebuked by his son-in-law. I imagine no one in all of Laban's life has ever dared talk to him like that. In all of Laban's life, he has always been respected. In all of his life, he has always been this powerful figure and here is this son-in-law that he can't stand giving it to him and every word of it he deserved. Every word of it. So how is Laban going to salvage his honor? How is he going to come out of this situation a little better for where? Well, he decides to enter into an agreement with Jacob. This is how he's going to fix it. This is our fifth scene, the reluctant covenant. Verse 43. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jegah Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mitzpah. For he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we, are out, when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives beside my daughters, though no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar, which I have set between you and me, this heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread and they ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them then Laban departed and returned home. Did you guys catch how Laban responded right at the start of that? How he said it? He basically proves Jacob's point. 
Because he says to Jacob, like, listen here, you little, little dude. These are my daughters. These are my children. No, they're not. They're Jacob's wives. They're Jacob's kids. Imagine your father-in-law saying that to you. Laban genuinely thinks that he still owns his daughters. He genuinely thinks that all those grandkids don't really belong to Jacob. They're his. They're his sons. They're his children. Man, lock this guy up. He needs to go to an institution. But he's beaten. Laban is beaten. And his beliefs in the matter are irrelevant. Right? doesn't matter what he thinks anymore. Because they are not his. God has made that clear. And God will bring calamity down if Laban tries any funny business. Any funny business. He knows that he's going to get away and he knows that Jacob will only continue to get stronger and stronger. And this is problematic. Because when Jacob's really strong, what's to stop him coming back to get revenge? Laban's concerned. Only thing left to him, we've got to make a covenant. We've got to make an agreement that you will not come back and I will not go to you and we'll leave each other, <laughs> we'll leave each other alone. And it's a fascinating covenant because the terms are simply this. Jacob must treat Laban's daughters well. And basically, the second part of it is a restraining order on either of them. <laughs> they pull out a restraining order on each other. Neither of them are allowed to cross the stones into each other's territory to do harm. And all of this is at Laban's choice. It's his choice to make this. It's not Jacob's. These are all Laban's terms. And the problem with men like Laban is they think that everyone else is like them. It's called projection. They project their own sins onto other people and they assume that other people struggle just as much as they do with the same sins. They're just as manipulative as they are. They're just as deceitful and petty as they are. The only difference with Laban and Jacob is Laban has the power right now, but Jacob's going to go get it. And if Laban was in Jacob's position, do you know what Laban would do? He would ride back out there with a sword and get vengeance on that terrible father-in-law, but not Jacob. He doesn't realize that Jacob is nothing like him. Laban has no idea. Jacob has become a very different man through the work of God. Jacob doesn't thirst and pine over rule and control and wealth. The only thing that consumes Jacob is the promised land. Getting home. Being where he needs to be in God's kingdom. And he wants to return to the land that God will give him. And he wants to be back where he's supposed to be. And if Laban understood this, there would have been no need for this covenant. He would have known that Jacob would have taken good care of his daughters and he would have known that Jacob wouldn't ever bother to return to that land. All Jacob wants is the promised land. It wasn't a problem that Laban was thirsty. It was just that Laban was drinking from the wrong well. He thought that if he could micromanage and manipulate everyone, their perceptions of him, he'd be satisfied. His life would have meaning and purpose and he would be someone. And he was someone. And yet it's been yanked from underneath him. Jacob used to play a similar game, but now he recognizes the truth. 
God's plan and purposes are where he needs to be. And I knew back when I was teaching scripture that these young people are actually thirsty. But they've been drinking from the wrong well for a long time. God in his grace awakens us to the reality of our hopelessness and need before him. The very fact that we are thirsty and that nothing in this life satisfies us shows us that we are made for something different. You are not made for those things to satisfy you. Greed, manipulation, relationships, control, experiences, status. You think those are going to satisfy you? You think they're not a house of cards that can collapse at any minute, just like Laban's whole system that he'd created? You know what these things are? They're household gods, fit for nothing else but for a menstruating woman to sit on top of them. That's what they are. Only the true and living God is supremely valuable. Only the true and living God is in control. And He is a well that you can come to again and again and again. And the Word promises you that you will never leave unsatisfied. Jesus says in Matthew 13, He talks about a man who finds treasure in a field or a merchant who finds a pearl, right? And they sell everything just to get it. You know what that kind of person is? Thirsty, ravenous, voracious. When God called Jacob to leave everything behind and follow his plan into the desert, he was calling Jacob to forsake what would only lead him to misery and despair. When God calls you to forsake your life and follow Jesus, he's only calling you to leave behind what will lead you to misery and despair. Because only God can satisfy us. Choose the greatest joy. Choose the greatest joy. Because only in His kingdom can the God of our fear, mercy, and joy be found. And so seek God. And just like Jacob, chase the promised land. For Jacob, he's received all the promises of a covenant. He's got descendants. He's got blessing. He's just yet to receive the land. Isn't that all of us? We have yet to receive the land. So like a thirsty man, like a ravenous woman, get out there in the desert and chase the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful story of Jacob where we see this man who has been deceptive and deceitful, this man who was weak, this man who sought his own gain, has been humbled greatly by your loving disciplines. And Father, in many ways, our lives have been humbled greatly by your loving care and discipline. And Father, would we not despise the ways in which you call us to account and the ways which you work in our lives? We thank you, Lord, that you have not left us alone, that you have not left us to fight our battles, even though you insist that often many times we do confront things, but also, Lord, you are with us. And Father, just as you challenged Laban, you also challenged the enemies of your church. And when they set themselves against you to curse your people, we know that you will bring upon them a curse. But for us, Lord, that follow you, we know that we have the greatest of all blessings, the promise that one day we will return 
home, that we will be with you in the promised land. Father, keep us thirsty for you. Keep us coming back to this well again and again and again and drinking deeply and being satisfied and filled to the fullness of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for your love for us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.